Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a longtime dear, dear friend. We met at least 10 years ago, Ben, I think, when you were at Mashable, I think. Yep, definitely, when I was at Mashable. Right, and uh, our guest today is Ben Marr. Ben is the CEO of Master Limited, uh, and uh, he is just a dear friend. We've had so much fun together over the years, worked on some great projects together. Most recently, he was the chief commercial officer at Outernet Global, which has opened in London. They are redefining the intersection of digital, experiential, retail, uh, so much more. So we'll dig into that. But uh, Ben, it's great to have you on Great Minds. I consider this correcting a historic oversight. So it's great to have you on the show today. Those that know me would argue that I'm at best an interesting mind and definitely not a great mind. So uh, I want to see you unpeel this. It feels like I should be on a couch for this more than anything. Uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, horizontal or vertical. As long as as long as we're not neither one of us is passed out, I think we'll be okay. So I'll ben, do my best. So many so many places to start with you, but I thought we'd go back sort of to the beginning. And you had ten years in sort of the early days of the modern age at two great companies, Yahoo and AOL Time Warner. Uh, started in sales in Yahoo just over 20 years ago, uh, I guess right at the turn of the century, the year 2000 actually. But I, I'd love to get your reflections on where we were then in the digital world. And you have real perspective, uh, having worked in the industry for so long on the journey but let's go back to that period of time and go back to almost day one working in sales at Yahoo, give or take the year 2000. So yes, I started at Yahoo and over 20 years on, I can't believe how lucky I've been. It was the sort of the reemergence post.com crash um, of an incredible industry, an industry that has just served me so well for the last 20 odd or 20 plus years. Um, a slight amendment to what you said. I started as an adult. I was putting two, three, four by sixties on the Yahoo website. So I remember that great day when the four, six, eight by 90 came around and we just, uh, the world's changed. I mean, clients are going to pay for this. This is a four, six, eight by 60. Do you understand? And then obviously we had the MPU and we had all these great things. But more than that, I sat next to people who earned a fortune in the dot-com boom and just were addicted. It was so infectious. There was a fax machine just firing off IO after IO for all these reborn dot-coms with huge amounts of money coming in. And then there was the actual company of Yahoo. Yahoo was the best. It was the greatest Yahoo sold their search business to Google. You know, Yahoo had the chance to buy Google in 98 for a million dollars. And they said no. They had the chance in 2002 to buy Google for $5 billion, but they wouldn't go above three. You know, this was an incredible business. I was there when they were discussing selling their auctions business. It was the biggest auctions business in the world. And they sold it to a startup called eBay. You know, this is just an incredible incubator of some of the best businesses. And to be fair, as I heard on one of your previous podcasts, the death of many others from Flickr to Tumblr to Broadcast.com to Yahoo Music. 
yeah, I see it as being one of the most exciting and incredible times to have been in a business. You know, I, I, I consider in my whole career, I had front row tickets for some of the most amazing decisions and indecisions ever. And you know, Yahoo is just the epitome of that. So you bring up something that's a really rich tapestry to go through a little bit. And there's this very odd juxtaposition, and I happen to agree with your take on Yahoo, of an incredible reservoir of talent. I think there are more people, Ben, that you and I know who at some point in their career, including both of us, spent time at Yahoo. And I think they have been by far the most prolific developer of talent still working today in our industry. But as you point out, and evidently I have too, uh, an incredible series of awful decisions. How do you, I don't wanna say rectify, but I can't think of the right word. How do we characterize, if you will, that odd juxtaposition of incredibly talented people, but incredibly awful business decisions? I think that it's fine to sort of understand how that could have happened because perspective and hindsight are wonderful things, but you don't necessarily have them in the immediacy of the moment. If someone's breathing down your neck and they want revenues and there's a startup willing to pay four or five times over a long period of time to take a big problem, to take headcount and workforce off the table, to do auctions, to do dating, to do, you know, to do search. I can see why those decisions were made. What I can't understand is when they were offered 40 billion in 2008 from Microsoft that they turned that down because what had gone before still seems crazy that they didn't learn. And they really didn't learn because by 2008, we had social media, we had those social networks, but Yahoo still didn't learn. So I sort of reflect on it as it was fortuitous for me to be there at a time where I learned from other people's mistakes. I got to see this happen. And, you know, if you look at all of my peers, so many of them have gone to do incredible things. If you went through ad tech specifically, I would argue that 75% of that, you know, sort of cohort leading some of the biggest ad tech businesses in the world have been through that Yahoo factory or, uh, you know, uh, sort of finishing school, let's say. Um, and, you know, that's pivoted adults into CEOs. There aren't many industries where you, so many people started on the floor and went all the way to the top of the boardroom. And I think irrespective of the decisions, it evolved over a, over a very sort of intense period of changing human behavior. It did some incredible things. It's just now that it still exists. It probably is reflects worse on it than if it had just completely fireworked and gone out in a big sort of uh, crescendo. So I think that the fact it still exists allows us to sort of do this memorial and sort of, you know, this digging over the carcass sort of thing. Whereas for many other brands, they just came and went. Whereas with this one, it still exists and it's still trying again and again and again. So then we reflect and we analyze. Whereas I don't think we'd have done that with so many of the other brands. Great, great answer. And, and they still have a big, big audience. I mean, there's still 900 million some odd people going. If to you Yahoo want to email my dead granny, you know, you can get her on Yahoo. It's sure. Oh, my gosh. All right. Such a, a, a cruel, so cruel. Uh, 
And reflecting further on that era before we start, you know, rowing our boat forward, so many great brands from that era did not survive. You know, you, you sort of just referred to it. I remember going back, Alta Vista, Disney's Go.com Experiment, brands like Lycos. Uh, I was just on with a friend of mine in California, and I remember he was the first one. He bought a Prodigy computer from Sears, which I remembered and we both just laughed about. What do you think it was about those that did survive versus those that didn't? In all honesty, I think so much of it was luck. You know, if we, again, take a similar view of history and look at the mistakes, the likes of the Microsoft founders or the Apple founders, and even look at someone like Steve Jobs, there's so much luck involved in being in the right place at the right time. There are three or four people at any one time with a great idea. And many instances show that people got lucky. And I think with a lot of those people, with a lot of those individuals, yeah, broadcast.com is a fantastic example. They hit the timing so perfectly to secure all the college basketball digital rights. And then someone didn't do the true due diligence on the uh, on the deal and the contracts and the the rigidity of those contracts when broadcast.com was one mark cuban was able to walk away and he's turned his money into a hell of a lot more money but you can't argue that he was lucky if someone had done the due diligence on those contracts and saw they were rolling they never would have paid the money they paid and i think that's a great example of you know that moment that time that frenzy around something that was so exciting just taking everyone away and yeah. I think that's quite a common theme from that time. And you still see it happening now. Yeah, acquisitions where people pay, pay far too much. Yeah, no, very, very, very true. I, the story I heard, and you'll know the truth, I think Mark Cuban got give or take $2 billion, mostly in cash, if not all in cash. And within a year, there was nothing left of what Yahoo had bought. Is that pretty accurate? Yep. <laughs> oh my I can't sugarcoat that. The contracts, if you sign a rolling contract with someone and you think it has no intrinsic value and then a year later someone gets a billion pounds for the aggregation or two billion pounds for the aggregation of that that thing you perceive to be worthless suddenly you realize that it's got a worth to it and you're going to put your hand out and say pay me what it's worth and that just meant it fell apart so quickly and you know it's not to say that the things that were done weren't brilliant you know and it's not to say that the technology wasn't good it was but the thing they bought was the aggregation of those contracts and they got lucky. Mm, incredible story. And Mark Cuban sure has done pretty well since then. So let's move on. You were very early to the game working in the agency world. I know you did a lot of work with Mindshare in particular around stuff that today is commonplace. But back then, working with brands, integrating analog and digital. That was relatively new territory in many, many ways. Uh, you worked on some great brands, uh, brands like Nokia and Mazda and so many others. Talk about that period and sort of the infancy, let's call it, of the uh, growing up into adulthood of the internet. I think the biggest learning from that period was the fight we had to sit at the top table and you know the the whole world has turned on its head in that respect in terms of where the budgets are commanded what do they look like but we were fighting a battle against press and tv in a way that seems crazy now as we've 
you know, convergence technology and obviously the the media leviathans of Google and Meta and Amazon have really taken the lion's share of all budgets. But then, yeah, we we were grateful. We were grateful to get some digital budget and we had some pretty amazing audiences in comparison. But the currencies, you know, the the equivalent of the TV ratings guys or the radio ratings boards, they had all of the statistics that had been relied on forever. You know, you used to do your runs on TGI and uh, a good run on TGI to validate your audience was 400 to 250 people for a sample size. You imagine going to a brand now and saying to them, yep, we've, we've done some analytics and 250 people have said it's it's great. They're not, could you spend 10 million pounds with me? No, I won't. Whereas we had huge audiences. So with something like AOL, when I got there, we were going to brands and saying, we understand what happens in all these homes. We were doing studies about how audiences who'd had the internet for five years at home on AOL or 10 years at AOL at home had grown up and how their behaviors were changing. And when we started talking about these changes in human behavior, brands really started to listen. And I still don't think we we punched at the right weight. I still think we were punching well below our potential. But we were starting to command a really, really interesting style of spend because it was more accountable. Arguably, it's now too accountable. But the reality is we were able to sort of tell stories and innovate and be interesting in way other brands couldn't. Um, I remember going to present to um, Joe Lyle and Claire Velotti when they were running Mindshare. And uh, we had this amazing stat that had come out in our reviews and that was that there was a generation of kids in Japan that were ringing the doorbells of homes with their thumbs. And people were like, what? So we'd stand in the presentation, we'd ask people to step up and we'd draw this doorbell on the wall and on the board and people would come and press it and they'd all use their finger. But this generation of people in Japan, because of the way they text messaged, because of the way their gaming consoles were, the primary digit that they were using for things was their thumb because of the devices. Now, they must look freakish in society because everything that preceded them and everything that went before, or you know, their, their pre and post, were all using the index finger. Whereas this generation, a very small moment in time, all used their thumb for everything they were doing on device, on controllers, et cetera, et cetera. And now we'll see if phones have changed. We're now using our fingers again for, for sort of these devices. But amusingly, this generation were using their thumbs. So you know, it's those stories and those deep dive things of behavioral sort of traits that really start to tell a story when you're speaking to brands and tell them things that excite them and interest them that they're not getting from other people. Amazing stories, Ben. You were also there and when it, the company was AOL Time Warner and it has since gone through a number of evolutions. Talk about reflections on that combination of assets all under one roof. What worked, what didn't, and uh, anything else? Because that was a, a unique era. At that time, there was no bigger deal in our space than that one. I think for AOL Time Warner, overall, did it work? No, it didn't. But if you, I'd said to you, five years post that, that we were going to amalgamate all of those assets, it was the right time to do it. You know, had streaming been a thing, there wouldn't have been a better 
sort of coming together of assets that 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 unison of being in everybody's home but in a multi-platform in a multi-content way you know it's, it's a metaverse approach let's be fair and that is a really interesting sort of point they were potentially too far ahead of their time and again coming back to the earlier point on failures there are many examples of those being too far ahead of them i've worked for a few of them and you know things that we tried to do at the wrong time and the world just wasn't ready conceptually yes absolutely on the money again once you look at other reasons why that may have failed the reality is that they're two very big businesses with very very different agendas at that point and I don't think the the true disruption had hit any of them by that point. Whereas if you look at the decade, 15 years since, they've been so disrupted. They've been challenging in every single way on every single platform from every single business model that they've ever had, whereas they weren't challenged then. So maybe they just didn't innovate or run quick enough for a lack of challenge at that particular point. Yeah, well said. You know, timing is everything, which you also referred to. And I remember when we started Advertising Week uh, 20 years ago in New York, one of the first people that I went and saw was John Partella, who at that point was running what was called Time Warner Global Marketing, along with uh, Mark Darcy and Leah Kamen and Leah Fishman, a very good team of people, most of whom I'm still in touch with. And John's mandate was to create revenue by aggregating deals across. And I think they had some successes, probably more failures or uh, opportunities that weren't capitalized on. But I, I, I always felt like that was a great idea. I just don't know if it'll work. And, and maybe timing was part of that. I think everything comes down to timing. There's, a, there's serendipitous moments in the histories of time that show us that you were lucky. You know, it happened. You were there. Congratulations. Make the most of it now. Some do, some don't. And we could got to sort of learn from what went before. So we're going to get to some successes, but let's uh, keep our failure streak going for the moment uh, and talk about Fox Interactive and MySpace in particular, which at one point in time, uh, they were the equal, if not superior, to Facebook in terms of audience and the business vision and opportunity uh, clearly went colossally wrong. But talk about uh, Fox Interactive and some of the great brands, but most notably uh, a lost chapter in history, which we'll bring back for a moment in MySpace. Ah, oh, MySpace. Who was in your top eight? I, I, it seems mad to even say to someone, yeah. you had a what? Yeah, we yeah. we used to put the top eight people that we fancied in the world on a page for the world to see. Okay, brilliant. I think in a Me Too and sort of a you know, a more educated world, where there's a few things we can reflect on there. But one of the funniest things was you look at how clever that business was at aggregating content from multiple sources, hosting multimedia in one place. Now, the biggest problem they had at that time was that we didn't have cloud computing. So, or we didn't have necessarily cloud computing that everyone had access to. So they were the most successful startup out of LA and they were based in a very hot place where they required physical servers. 
And one of the interesting things about MySpace, now I joined just after the acquisition by Fox. So, you know, they'd already shown what they could do. They'd already shown incredible growth. And then we were part of the international rollout. So we started in London. We rolled out um, with the likes of sort of uh, Jay Stevens, uh, Travis Katz, Jamie Kantrovitz. We rolled out nine markets, nine countries in 18 months, training up the sales directors, launching the teams, doing all the brand launches, getting into the cultural zeitgeist that exists in every one of those markets. But the reality was the bigger the business got, the more physical servers they needed, the more voracious the appetite was of the audience to create content, to post music, photos, videos, the bigger the cost got. And the reason that Murdoch got it at such a steal was that they were forced to sell stock all the way through to their serving provider or their server host until they didn't have quite the same control that they wanted to. And so the story I heard was that it got sold from them. Mm. You know, they were a victim of their own success. I don't believe if they'd sold, they would have been treated in quite the same way. And they certainly weren't, didn't get the success or the financial rewards at the same level that other entrepreneurs who have had startups did, because I believe that their success started to sort of, you know, to eat them in terms of more and more service. They were putting on a million people, uh, sort of minimum a million people a week at one point. And you could see it spreading like a virus, like it would pop up around the LA music scene. And then there'd be a space in Hawaii where someone had obviously taken to Hawaii, the scene there had adopted it, and suddenly they were scaling. So whereas something like Facebook obviously had very defined areas of growth around collegiate setups across the US, which is kind of predictable and controlled. MySpace didn't have any of that apart from, you know, if you couldn't do basic HTML or find a uh, template, which let's face it, for a lot of people was a barrier, but the consumption of content wasn't a barrier. So those high level of voyeuristic and consumer traits of, you know, music and photos and videos, they were so far ahead. And it was just a beautiful thing to be part of. And again, that education piece of speaking to brands and going, yep, you're going to put your content into a platform and people are going to do pretty much what they like with it. Okay. And that's not a comfortable space to be, but it was a fun space to be as a, an employee, as someone selling it, as someone growing it, as someone learning the different nuances of behaviors in different markets. And yeah, we still see that now. I remember being somewhere um, much later or a decade after MySpace and being in a market presenting, I was presenting in Saudi Arabia and we were talking about the futures and talking about social and the person had flown in and I won't name the company. Um, they hadn't done the research on the market and they didn't understand that the social behaviors and the cultural nuances in that market were poles apart from their US norms or their Western Europe norms. And they went and gave their same old presentation and wow, it went down bad because they didn't understand where they were. And I think that says a lot about, you know, again, different entrepreneurs, different startups, different assumptions that we make. One of my favorite MySpace stories, well, there's two. There's there's a cracker that when we were on conference calls, we used to hear the beep and we'd be on with, you know, one of the major agency groups. We'd be on with a major client having a call and then beep. 
hi, sorry, someone just joined the call. Sorry, sorry, someone joined the call. Nothing. And it would happen again and again and again and again and again. And we had on good authority that that was the kind of thing that Rupert did or his senior execs would do was just jump on calls to see what was going on, to see that we were telling the right stories, to see that we knew our game and it helped their learning. And, you know, I, I'd love to say that's true, but it happened to me so many times but on the biggest calls. You'd be on the phone to someone else, never. If it was a big deal and it was on the pipeline. So we used to start our calls with, if you hear a beep and you think someone's joined the call, just be warned because we were so paranoid of what could happen. Oh my God, great. And what was the other good story? You said you had two. The other one was we had an all hands and um, we, I used to get a call from, I will, I'll give her a name drop in here, a lady called um, Maria Gonzalez, now Maria Hunt. And she was Tom's uh, Tom's EA and she ran the office in LA. And um, she'd phone me up, post the calls and say, uh, Tom, Tom wants to know how the call went. Um, could you give some feedback from the floors? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, look, it went down well. I thought this was good. Oh, should you try this? Because they were good, but they were learning. They'd not managed businesses in that way with large global workforces. Well, one of my favorites was um, the day I got the call to ask the feedback when multiple people had said, where do you see Facebook? How do you, how much of a threat do you see Facebook being? And the quote came back, they're a US only college site. We've got 120 million global users. I think that answers that. And oh my God. there'll be many people who can respond to that and confirm that that was the case. But that was the quote that was said. They've got 120, we've got 120 million users all over the world. I think that answers that. And they came and ate our lunch within six months. They had absolutely decimated us. And, you know, the rest is history for that. Amazing stuff. Somebody brought the brand back a few years ago, more than a few, but I'll say maybe eight, 10 Justin years Timberlake. Ago. Yeah, Justin Timberlake and these two brothers, Chris and Tim, I think Vanderhoek was their name and we did a did whole Ziff bunch Davis of stuff have a go at one point sorry Matt. Did Ziff I, Davis have a go at one point i as think well? they were involved yeah i think that's right and we did a big concert with them uh with myspace and we did an event at radio city there's a beautiful little room the original grand impresario of radio city was a guy named roxy rothafel and he literally lived in radio city to this day there is an apartment in this spectacular theater, imagine living in Royal Albert Hall. And it is now a beautiful little Art Deco suite, very special room. And we did an event with MySpace and Justin Timberlake in that room at Advertising Week, probably 10 years ago. And it lasted, the comeback was short. I can't say it was sweet uh, with any knowledge, but it did come back for a few minutes. I, if Yahoo's coming back again, let's bring Mashable back. Let's have another go. Come on. Oh, my God. Uh, so as you start to go forward, and Ben, still a pretty young guy, you start to spread your wings globally. Um, did some really interesting stuff with Endemol, your next gig. And one I'd love to talk about, I read this, and I'd love you to tell me if it's true, not true, and give us the story, is that you were a key player in helping launch the 99 the world's first Islamic superhero cartoon. Is that true? Oh, that and is, 
Is that a story? <laughs> is that a story worth telling? I rely on your judgment versus our crack research team here at Great Minds. I mean, that is I I have a copy of the ninety nine somewhere in the house, and it was uh, an Islamic superhero comment comic. I wouldn't say I was integral. I would say that I was very lucky to be asked to provide an opinion on such things. One of the interesting things about um, the world of Endemol is everything works on a project basis. So you end up being in a position where um, I worked on a, a special teams project for a, a, a very well-known TV producer called Andy Ward, who'd done many of these big um, sort of award shows around the world. And we were working on integrating avatar technology into um, Big Brother and other such programs. So this was 2008. We were using uh, Myriad style technology where you overlay brands into shows so we could change the brand on the T-shirts that people were wearing. We were, we put in um, computers to the um, Big Brother house in Germany and the girls in the Big Brother house designed their ideal man. And then they went around Germany and found him. So we were using technology in really interesting ways there. Um, we also looked at producing things like virtual worlds for um, global scouting for the World Scout Foundation. And that exposes you to learn. There was there were over 120 million scouts in the world. And, you know, some of the big, like, I think, fifth, although the, uh, the US, uh, the Eagle Scouts aren't part of the uh, the actual Scout Foundation, but one in one in two at the time, US men had been part of the Scouts. You know, uh, Indonesia, I think it was, had the most Scouts. Had eight million Scouts in Indonesia. So there were many parts of the world that had these huge volumes of um, you know clever, young, talented people, but had no access to information. And at the time, the Scouts wanted to build a a museum or a, uh, a school in Geneva. And we said, put the money into building a virtual world. And then we went around and spoke to, you know, the likes of Emmasat and Nokia and um, and Samsung to put satellite stations into um, less affluent parts of the world where there weren't communications. And these were gonna be manned by the scouts. So we were doing some really innovative things back then. And we were gonna have the, um, you know, the more developed world funding the less fortunate. So by having an additional subscription in the fees for those that could afford it, an extra 50p at the week, we created a model that could work and we went and pitched it. Um, now, unfortunately, I don't think it went anywhere, but the reality was being on these projects that were just so innovative and so forward thinking, but they were coming from a television program, uh, sorry, from a television production point of view. So it was a really interesting sort of, world to be in you had the likes of um you know obviously john de mole who is a legend in tv formatting and you'd go and spend time in hilversum where they created all these incredible shows that have been syndicated around the world and then you had people like people but peter basiljet sitting above you in the office and you go peter wants to see you wants to know what's going on with this project we got and you know terrified as to what the feedback was going to be or also what the next mad mission might be that we were going to be put on so yeah it really taught me a lot about developing brand monetizing brand you know nobody got more money out of a brand than endemol over the years whether it was a a big brother or a deal or no deal they're an incredible factory uh, sort of uh, you know maximizing brand revenues and and much like yahoo another great farm system of talent 
absolutely. I'm in touch with many of the wonderful people that we worked with. I have to say, though, I don't think we had as much of a laugh as some of the sort of production units that we sat in amongst. They produced some incredible shows with some mad, mad uh, sort of <laughs> outcomes. Fantastic A lot stuff. of people getting their clothes off for some reason. Well, well uh, this is a family show, Ben, please. So let's talk about another company that I did not remember that you were there as part of it. I remember Tony Moretta and some of the other folks at Weave, which was a big partner of ours when we launched Advertising Week in 2013. I remember we did a breakfast with the CEOs of EEO2 and Vodafone at Ronnie Scott's our very first year that was absolutely rammed. Uh, but talk about Weave. It was a very uh, ambitious idea, another one that maybe timing wasn't right. Uh, or something wasn't right, but talk about Weave and what it was, the concept, and I know you spent a year and change there uh, working uh, with some pretty great people as well. Yeah, Weave was, again, I seem to have a lot of these experiences where I've been somewhere where conceptually this should be a world-changing moment, and maybe I'm the uh, the negative force here, but the reality is in this instance they brought together these leviathans of telecommunications in terms of Voda, Telefonica and um, and EE. And what they wanted to do was bring a unified solution for loyalty, media and payments, which today makes complete sense, but we're still not there. Now, we are looking at unified identifiers from an advertising perspective, but that's because the hands or oh, sorry, the networks now are forced to compete with the other giants within the spaces. Uh, and they're, they're worried about having their revenues cannibalized. But the fact is back then we had an incredibly talented team. We had a huge number of engineers and the idea that we could go and have people go into stores with one app and have all of their payments and loyalty all aggregated would have built an incredible infrastructure or an incredible database that we could have utilized. We had beautiful reach but the reality was in 2013, we were selling text messages. So we were selling text messages to a base of probably, well, Telefonica, it was mainly Telefonica customers. They had about 26 million, but then you only had about a million of them that were opted in. But we were able to geofence them. We were able to do some incredibly targeted things that we now all take for granted. But back then, they were new, they were innovative. It was ultimately frustrating because it became almost what it almost went full circle from being morphed out of the Telefonica ad, ad business with these grand ambitions with everyone on board to then becoming an advertising business again. Um, so I think the other thing that was really interesting about it was that the rest of the world in terms of mobile advertising, in terms of uh, cookie based advertising at that time, accelerated so quickly that what they were able to offer and also how different markets saw, um, you know, I guess the the preceding legislation, the legislation that came before GDPR, the fact is these regulations and these restrictions from opt-in to opt-out contracts and things started to really affect their databases of who they could reach. And I think ultimately consumers started to become smarter Back then, there was a survey done across the base and it asked how much the consumers valued their data app per month. And the answer was £2.38. 
Amazing. So I don't another... think if I could offer someone two pound thirty eight, they'd give me nothing right now. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, uh, as we start to build the Ben Moore narrative, uh, you know, uh, two thought of thought, thoughts come to mind. One is timing is everything, and the other is sort of right place or idea, wrong time. <laughs> interesting sort of thread of continuity, I think having nothing to do with you per se, just sort of the circumstance of, the, of many of the companies that you are with. Uh, Mashable probably belongs in that list too in some fashion. Another company that had a brilliant moment where they were a really bright, shining star with led by Pete Cashmore and so many other great talented people. We met our dear friend, Seth Rogen at that time when he was at Mashable, still love Seth. Uh, but talk about Mashable. That was a really interesting company. You were rising up the ladder there, running all their EMEA business and I think some other parts of the world as well, maybe Southeast Asia. T talk about Mashable, really just such a, a bright shining star for a moment in time. So I'm going to address Mashable. I'm going to address your point first of what you said about is it me or is it them? It's I not you. It's not you, Ben. I know you pretty well. You're you're a, you're a, you are a genuine. You're the real deal, Ben. It's not you. You are very kind. But the one thing I would say, and this sort of goes back to the interesting mind and great mind point, I have a mind that needs to be satisfied, and I have an appetite for the next thing. So there is always going to be this point where I have either moved on or I am moving on to the next thing and that I've become more at one with and I think in the previous you know a generation ago it would have been frowned on so badly to have moved around between different businesses but now the way our industry has evolved over the last 20-25 years has been at such a like insane pace that I've been able to cover all these grounds and feel that I've been part of something incredible and I don't feel that it's necessarily to my detriment i think it's been absolutely beneficial to my learning so now in answer to your second question mashable it was a business started by a scotsman in his bedroom who after a year had six employees around the world writing articles and he'd never met any of them so he moved to the west coast he didn't like it he moved to new york and he found his happy place and that business went gangbusters it went crazy it became the world through the eyes of the internet. And the thing that they did better than any other business I've ever worked for is understand what was coming next in terms of platforms, in terms of cultural zeitgeist, and they got on it quickly. Again, they did things in ways that no one else was doing. And it allowed me as someone who is always the evangelist for the businesses I work for, I have to believe in what I'm saying but they had algorithms and forecasting technologies that allowed them to see how an article was going to trend and forecast what they should be writing about. Not exclusively what they should be writing about, but to see that a moment, and the product was called Velocity, was going to get above the parapet and actually start to sort of, I guess, scale. And what they did was create a hierarchy of Twitter accounts so every single vertical within the business, there were 42 Twitter accounts. They would put them out naturally on the website. They would then post out the ones that got the little blips. 
And then as they kept going, they would feed them up the hierarchy. And then the ultimate was to be posted by Mashable or to be posted by Pete. And that able, enabled them to be way ahead of what was going to trend. So when new series came out, they would write about it. So something like Game of Thrones, they were there first saying, this is incredible. This is what people are seeing. And then all of the meme culture and all of the trend culture, they were had their finger on the pulse for all of that. They were on things like Vine. When Vine was massive, it was massive for Mashable. But at the same time, they had an amazing ability to get onto Snap. And they had one of the largest Snap accounts anywhere. Snapchat hired the person who ran the account for Mashable. And you don't get bigger compliments than that. And this is where they were so, so clever. But again, they scale quite quickly. Um, they tried to be sort of a, a jack of all trades. And arguably that can often affect your core because you can't become a TV studio overnight. You can't produce on every single vertical in the world. And then naturally your core audience start to resent you bringing politics, for example, into their world of fun internet cultural memes. And that tends to sort of, uh, you know, sour the waters a little bit because you can't compete with the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. You can't compete with The Guardian and have journalists around the world in the same way and retain your place in the world and that voice. And I think that was the sad thing for me. I still love the business. I still follow Pete and listen to what Pete has to say. Um, I even uh, We even sponsored a rugby team um, back in the day with Mashable because Pete and he, Pete was a big rugby player before he, he had illness as a child and his dad was a massive uh, Scotland rugby fan. And so, you know, we had some really good moments. We had some really good learnings. And, you know, I, I'm pleased to say that I can still count on Seth uh, as, a, as a good friend. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll be, uh, I'm in New York in a couple of weeks and I'll be catching up with him when I'm there. Yeah, it's a terrific guy and great, great stories, Ben. You're a guy who also has a lot of heart and uh, I see that and feel it every time I'm with you. You've also made that part of your career uh, founding Be Worthwhile. Uh, could we talk about the genesis of that? I know it had a really nice run matching charities and people uh, based on their skills and time and, and geography, but uh, I'd love to talk about Be Worthwhile and, and the heart part of Ben Mar. So one of the things, one of my frustrations is that I think people pull the ladder up too often. And I think that we need to address that in society. People are very active when they're on the ground and they can be very militant and uh, very vocal about what they believe. But I think we have a real place in the world. And, you know, this isn't sort of anything new, but for me, it's really important that you give back. And it's really important that you stand for things and whether it's helping startups or whether it's helping social mobility to give other people opportunities, whether it's ensuring that our industry is as representative as possible. I'll put myself out there and, and, and make my time available. Um, but I was working with the likes of um, The Drum on one of their Do It days. And um, The Drum uh, is, is the, the, the trade newspaper um, or trade site. Um, and Gordon, um, who was one of the founders there, was saying, oh, would you get involved? Would you do one of these hackathon days? And so we sat there and um, a lot of folks at IBM got involved. But in, in essence, Be Worthwhile was trying to match up 
the volunteering days that exist um, that businesses have to do to achieve their sort of uh, corporate social responsibility. So what we did was took the unused days and then matched them anonymously with opportunities based on people's LinkedIn skills. Uh, and what that allowed us to do was say to people, rather than taking a bunch of incredibly well-trained accountants or lawyers and having them go and paint a wall of a school, and then they all bond and say, oh, haven't we done a wonderful world? And the company gets a tick for doing something wonderful and uh, you know, in the forward thinking in the best interest of the planet. Well, why don't we take the skills that people have? Why don't we create bonds and affiliations between charities and individuals? Because on one hand, the individual gets to donate their time. If you're a lawyer and you are basically, you know, operating on billable hours, you don't necessarily have convenient times in the year to take a day off to go and volunteer. But if I said to you, could you read one extra document a day? You'd be able to create that window in your world where actually your volunteering could fit your lifestyle and actually really benefit a, uh, a, you know, a charity. The other thing that would be important is you, we would then gamify it and give you rewards. So if you were a one-year volunteer, if you volunteered 100% of your time, you'd get a certain award. But if you volunteered extra time beyond what was given by the company and did it on multiple years, the sort of the level of your awards could, could, uh, you know, could rise. And again, that's a really good way of allowing people to get closer to the things that matter to them, which is very difficult when corporates have two or three maximum things that they'll back throughout a year. It can disenfranchise people that they're not volunteering for something they specifically care about. The other thing is, it helps regulate charities and organizations that do charitable activities. Lots of them have big fat cat offices that aren't really what you thought you were signing up for. Whereas if we can help facilitate better and more and reduce the cost base of the charities, they might be able to do more with the money we volunteer. So when we're donating, we want to know that as much of it is going to the cause we wanted to support as opposed to the administration of the cause. Now, I'm not calling out any specific charities. I'm just saying that we need to be in a world where everyone is held to account. And in that instance, it's a great example of there being days there that just are not used and the days that are used for volunteering are used for planting trees. Well, most people that have done their, you know, our chartered accountants didn't have to plant a tree as part of their coursework and therefore may not be good at planting trees. But I tell you what, they can run their eye through over a uh, you know, man set of management accounts and give some advice. Insurances and all those other elements, you know, uh, would need would needed to be considered. But um, it was the most popular volunteering day uh, or hackathon. It was the most popular, popular one that uh, IBM had ever had. And so I'm very proud of that. Um, we've done a number of sort of things since. And uh, I even got an email today about the domain. And I'm determined now that we live in a world of more advanced AI, that we can make this an even more efficient and optim optimized uh, and automated opportunity, basically. That's a great, great story. And, and, and I love anything having to do with giving back. It's a very big part of what we do is a very big part. I know when we caught up in London a few weeks ago, sharing stories from our launch of Advertising Week in Africa. And uh, I love that heart story. So let's uh, talk about OuterNet. You've left a real legacy there, a bricks and mortar legacy. Uh, it's an incredible development, Tottenham uh, Court Road and 
uh, in Oxford, right uh, in the heart of one of the most vibrant parts of London. Uh, you were absolutely critical player as chief commercial officer. Um, I think it's just about all open now, but I'd love to talk about your journey there and your experience there, darn near close to five years, uh, and uh, really, really something special. I know there's global ambition for it, but let's talk about your tenure at Outernet. I think we're doing something at Advertising Week there. I think we worked out something through you or something in the digital arena, at least, uh, through your kindness, but uh, let's talk about Outernet. So, Outernet. What is an Outernet? That is the question that I've answered more than any other over the last um, four to five years. Um, I was fortunate, enough, and I will answer that, I was fortunate enough to get a phone call from someone to say, can you come and have a look at this? Um, we're, we're doing something in the out-of-home space, and I think you should have a look. And the reason for that was I had, was at JC Deco at the time. I'd been running the UK business with uh, Dallas Wiles from a commercial perspective, and I just moved into their programmatic offering, uh, View, as the chief commercial officer. So I went along, had a look, and these guys were showing me this entertainment district in central London with a hotel, with 13 bars and restaurants, with 26K resolution screens. It was insane. And um, I know you've already told me that we're uh, we're not swearing on here, so I won't swear, but let's just say I told them they were something no, no, crazy. You, you, you can swear. It's okay. Oh, they were, I told them they were fucking crazy. And I told them how, why, what, like I didn't have anything sensible to say. It was just question after question after question because I'd never seen anything like this. This was the sort of the, the, the brainchild of an individual who'd been in the property world for over 30 years. They'd been involved with the um, sort of the cleanup of Soho, getting to the point of owning, you know, double digit percentages of Soho. But then as Soho became even more expensive, they couldn't afford to buy. So they made 116 acquisitions over a period of 25 years to build out what was becoming the Outernet district. 11 years of planning, and that's multiple iterations to get it through the council. And one of the most interesting things I asked was, wait, which council are we in? Which borough of London? Because it makes such a difference to the regulations and, and what kind of sort of public display uh, in terms of uh, you know screens is permitted um fortunately for them they were in the borough of camden and they've put together an incredible configuration so in their words an outernet is a shared experience it is if the internet is a solace or inverted sort of experience although it's a huge experience of discovery this was an experience that people would share and i feel very passionate that we've created there across five different zones of incredibly high resolution screens you know this is 230 million pixels it's 192 kilometers of cat6 cable it's one of the most connected spaces in the world there are nearly 300 audio channels running through the district so you can create emotional evocative experiences and create something more meaningful in public space what we didn't want to create was ad vomit. If you walked into a room and you just felt like a brand was just screaming at you first thing in the morning, that could be the worst thing you could ever do. Creating a space that 
understands its audience, that has the ability to connect with individuals at different times of the day. Yeah, we have data now. Let's use data. Even if it's just common sense, if you arrive at seven in the morning and there's a brand screaming at you, the chances of you wanting that as an experience, as opposed to blue light raising your energy levels or a sunrise or nature or just grabbing a coffee, the reality is that's probably going to be more preferable. But then spaces should evolve. They don't need to do one thing every single time of the day, every single day of the year multi-sensory experience allows us to evolve that experience around contextual relevance, the timing relevance, seasonality, you name it. All our spaces should start to be able to morph, to fit better the demands of the audiences. Let's face it, the audiences have evolved beyond our comprehension in terms of their expectation levels. They walk around with the most advanced computers in the world in their pockets, and up until immediate generation, they barely used any of that technology. Well, they've got, you know, 100 megapixel cameras in their phones right now. They have got the ability to do everything they want right there in the immediacy. We have to provide an experience that breaks the connection to that device. So it's got to be bloody good and it's got to be relevant. And it also has to hand a little bit of that narrative control back. You can't set up an entity or a, a media platform in this day and age that has one polarized editorial voice and tells people what they think. That's a very consensual and sort of almost subscription way of living. If you chance upon something, it has to at least consider you and understand you and hand you a little bit of that control back. And I think what we haven't done with that space, and we've been very successful in creating a space. Um, it was in the Times the other week that it's in the top five attractions or forecast to be in the top five attractions in the UK. And that's from a standing start. And everyone, you know, I've, I've obviously moved on now, but I'm incredibly proud of that and proud of the team we created and what we've done. And we did it at a time when it hasn't been easy. We did it through COVID. And it allowed us to learn. It allowed us to revise what we were doing on a number of occasions. And, and now I think, you know, they're in a wonderful place where they can start to look at doing this all over the world. Um, the demand and the number of different, um, you know, city authorities, uh, wealth funds, investment funds, developers that I met during this journey has been incredible. And um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to being in New York in a couple of weeks to to meet with a number of those and look at some of the incredible developments that are happening. Um, you look at how spaces like Times Square is going to evolve and you've got some major players there with real estate that has been challenged post COVID. You know, we've lost a lot of the major retailers that were largely bricks and mortar based. Um, and that means that there's now opportunity an opportunity in a way that we've we've never seen before to create experience in these great cities that can keep them as the most captivating and interesting environments as they always have been because they're not fundamentally broken at all there's still a huge desire to be entertained outside of the home beyond the mobile phone we just have to be smarter of how we do it how we engage what the value exchange is and we've now got the best technology possible to do that. You know, we have smart data, we have artificial intelligence, 
And a lot of that, if we did everything we wanted to do right now, we terrify the public. You know, you look at the sort of the, the smart stores, the smart shelves, the smart shopping experiences where you don't even take your phone out of your pocket. You can walk in, transact and move out. That's great for us who are so exposed to all this technology and read all of the great ad press and media press. But 95% of the public would be terrified, would take us to the village square and burn us like a witch. They're, they are just not ready for that progression of technology. So we find ways of integrating it that aren't so intrusive, that are respectful and will excite. Because if we can excite, surprise and delight, we can do amazing things. And I think that's the challenge I lay down to you know, the major cities, to the major developers, to the mall owners, to the mass transit points around the world. Make your experience engaging, respect your audiences, and you're going to have an incredible, profitable, lucrative relationship with them. So you've created this incredible living, breathing space that is the true manifestation of digital experiential. It's not just the best of today. It really is in many ways been the best of tomorrow, but it's here today. But you've also paid homage to some great history. Can you talk briefly about uh, Denmark Street and how you have uh, woven that into OuterNet? And then let's get to the most exciting part of our conversation today here on Great Minds, which is what's next for Benmore? So we talk about the history. I did a podcast the other week for an Amazon series of the providers are available. And they turned up and said to me, um, I am doing a podcast traveling around the world and I've, I've got five songs that are important to me. And they sat down with me. And uh, I think I played this guessing game with you when I saw you recently. But the song that they had was a Spice Girls song. And my mind was blown because I could not see the connection. I've researched Denmark Street. I've researched Denmark Street before it was even Denmark Street to understand what I was doing. Nope. Apparently it was recorded down the road. It was recorded, this, this particular song in a studio near a Soho. But this guy happened to love Denmark Street. And we had a fabulous chat. And he was talking to me about Denmark Street, about a period of history at Denmark Street that meant something to him. And I think... If there's any road or any street or place we can talk about where it can encapsulate different people's moments in time, that's an incredible thing to say. And the reason Denmark Street can do that is it's been the home of British music since 1911. It was where Charlie Chaplin wrote the song Smile. It was where the Melody Maker was founded in 1926, the NME in 1954. David Bowie lived in a converted ambulance outside the Italian cafe uh, called La Gioconda. Um, Mark Boland, Jimi Hendrix would hang out there. Tom Jones was hanging out on the street. Elton John had his first job as a runner. The Sex Pistols lived there. Bob Marley bought his most famous guitar there. I love music. And I love the history of music. And Denmark Street is the epitome of it. I think it's a completely, like, unsung gem or unsung hero um and it's something that i like to celebrate because developers get such a bad reputation whereas the the outernet business and the holding company had been a landlord there for over 25 years and they've managed to maintain the music 
stores. They've managed to add additional music stores. And that's during a period where there's been the redevelopment of the area in terms of Centrepoint, the redevelopment or the development for Crossrail, and then the Outernet development. So they've had a decade where they've been, you know, they've they've potentially struggled with footfall on the street. But interestingly, again, those businesses have evolved. Their digital sales have been fantastic. And I'm very proud that we've managed to add three live music venues to Denmark Street. Um, because if you're going to have a home of British music full of stores, full of amazing, um, you know, historic items, there's not many people, certainly in the UK, that you'll meet and say, oh, you bought a guitar. Where did you buy? Oh, I bought it on Denmark Street. And it's almost the the you know the suffix that any sentence that involves oh i went to denmark street and i bought or i bought a piece of musical equipment and i think that's amazing so if we can create something that and we have created something that can start to feed into that ecosystem we can start to increase the awareness we were very conscious of not disneyfying the street the last thing you want to do is take something that's so precious and then stick a big pair of ears on it and uh you know have people with you know, drinking massive drinks and having hot dogs and going crazy down the street. It has to have some authenticity. So we wanted to preserve that as much as possible. Uh, and I feel they did a great job. My point about the guy, though, that asked about his moment in time, I said, well, what moment in time? He said, well, you know, the, the late 90s. And I was like, right. So you didn't care about Denmark Street when it was the Sex Pistols in the 70s. I, I didn't know that. But you didn't care about it when it was, uh, you know, David Bowie in the 60s. Oh, I didn't know about that. I said, all right. What about when it was the worst slum in London and Dickens based Oliver Twist there? Or Robert Louis Stevenson based Mr. Hyde's Nocturnal there there? Or Hogarth depicted the gin riots? Or when they built the church in the 7th century? Places tell stories and if you take the time to learn about that place, I'm selling ads, I'm selling experiences, I'm selling events. But I know my area and I knew my history and it made it so much more genuine that we were interested in what had preceded us to know what we could do and what we could do moving forward. Um, and I think that's a really important thing for anyone. If you're building something, understand a little bit about what went before because if it's an idea, someone may have had that idea. And we talked last time we met about uh, the homogenization or the you know homogeneity, or I can't even say it, the generic nature of the world now. And I said, oh, I'm going to write an article about it, Matt. I've got to do it. Well, do you know what? I didn't because I did a bit of research. And a guy called Alex Morell has done an incredible job of it. And it has all of the things I was talking about from the Russians who did the study in the 90s on art to how Airbnb had done, you look at Airbnb and everywhere you could stay in the world looks the same, or the all ads for all movies in different countries are the same, or books, even down to Insta culture where everyone looks the same. I was smart enough to actually go, oh, I'll see if that exists. And so I'm really sorry to say, Matt, I'm not gonna write that article because that guy's done an incredible job. I couldn't have done it better. And his name's Alex Morell. And he's the, I think he's the chief strategy officer at Epoch. So shout out to him. I'll uh, I'll post the article on LinkedIn and yeah, it just shows, have a look what was there before. And uh, that was a mad segue from uh, from LinkedIn, from uh, Denmark Street, but it just kind of proves my point. Know what went before and celebrate it. 
Fantastic stories. And I love what you've done there to weave together sort of the literally most state-of-the-art technology, uh, but also paying homage to a place with incredible history. Um, let's talk about what's next, Ben. You uh, uh, not this is not an investigative journalism, but you shared some exciting stuff that you're working on different parts of the world, really capitalizing on the body of experience that you built in, you know, give or take the first half of your career. Let's talk about what's next to the degree that you can share with us. I think I need to be comfortable knowing that I don't know exactly what's next. And I've embraced that. I've had to think about it long and hard. Um, but I can say with, you know, to, uh, you know, Gemma Greaves does the uh, comfortable being uncomfortable is a slogan for her podcast. I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. And I've had a, I've owned a casino. I've worked with SpaceX back in 2013, looking at putting on a concert in space. I've owned a t-shirt brand. I've worked with games companies. It's important to know that there is a window now where we can define what's next. And that may be my experience helping facilitate someone else right now in the, in the developer space. That's where I'm most excited at the moment because that convergence of real world experience, a lot of redundant space at the moment, um, the ability you know, and the proliferation of screens increasing massively in the public domain. And then we have added audio to that uh, outernet, not many spaces in the world have done that first step of adding an audio visual experience. Well, look, there's a hell of a lot of learnings out there already as to what to do and what not to do. But I tell you what, once you start adding audio to a public experience like that, just visual seems very tired. And that's not to say there aren't great screens in the world. There are incredible curated experiences all over the world. But I think we're at that sort of that launch point to that next generation of experience, that next point of public storytelling. And so that's where I see myself at the moment is working with people across Asia, the Middle East uh, and the US and anywhere else that will have me, um, you know, creating incredible public experiences. Um, I've got a couple and I can't tell you what they are right now, but I will be in New York discussing them in the next couple of weeks. And I'm very excited about them. Fantastic. Well, your energy is infectious. Um, your journey, which is far from complete, uh, is exciting. And you've worked at some of the great companies, uh, many of which are still uh, here in some form or some iteration, perhaps a little bit different than when, uh, when you were there. But I loved our conversation, Ben, and, and I think you do indeed qualify as a great mind, and it's been our privilege to have you. Uh, here for an hour or so for this conversation. Thank you, my friend. It's been an absolute pleasure.